Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. This past Wednesday evening, President Biden gave a speech entitled uh, Standing Up for Democracy. His major point was American so-called democracy is under attack and there's too much violence in U.S. politics. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's a published book author and two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist with more than 20 years of journalistic experience. He's a former Washington Post bureau chief and award-winning foreign correspondent on two continents, John Jeter. As always, John, welcome back. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Wilmer. So we're less than a week away from midterm elections. Biden takes to the airwaves to discuss the tenuous nature of U.S. so-called democracy, while people in America are concerned about their jobs, uh, their existence, along with possible foreclosure and eviction. And by my count, Joe Biden mentioned the economy. He used the word economy once in that entire delivery. Uh, Your thoughts, John Jeter. Well, this was a campaign speech. Uh, This was a campaign speech because Joe Biden realizes, as I think most of us are coming to realize or beginning to realize that the Democrats are uh, walking into, and I want to use this word deliberately because it's one of my favorite words, an abattoir on Tuesday. Uh, There's going to be blood. um, And I think lots of it, lots of blue blood. um, And that's becoming increasingly clear because the Democrats have not met the basic needs of the people uh, for blacks and working class people in general. We're talking about inflation. We're talking about an economy that no matter what they say is in recession by any measurement that matters. And for uh, many whites, not all, but many whites, uh, there's the issue of crime, which, of course, we recognize them as connected. Uh, But in any case, this was a campaign speech. Uh, The abortion issue has not worked out for the Democrats the way they thought it would. I don't know why they would think that it would work out for them when they've been in power for so many years. They were in power with Obama for eight years and they did nothing to codify Roe v. Wade. So they're very desperate, uh, rightfully so. Uh, Nothing is working out for them. The one issue that is important to the American voters is what they are extremely weak on. And I really think that, you know, Joe Biden was kind of singing for his supper as well. I think he realizes, uh, I think it's probably been made clear to him that if the Democrats lose this, uh, th- these midterms in a spectacular way, that it's very likely that the um, uh, party, uh, the party's masters, which is basically Wall Street, uh, will seek to nominate someone else. And he doesn't have a snowball's chance in hell. Uh, of defeating a, a a ticket of what I expect to be um, uh, uh, Michelle Obama and Gavin oh. Gavin Newsom. Okay. Oh, against against Trump against Trump and DeSantis. Okay, he's um, done. That's my expectation. Yeah, yeah. So so I, I expect that um, you know I, I I suspect that this was a campaign speech meant to avert a disaster, which is unavoidable for the Democrats. 
You know, when I I watched it too, and when I did, I mean, I watched it after the after the fact on online. But the first thing I thought, I'll tell you what I thought about. Some years ago, I'm an independent now, but I was a Democrat, and some Republicans were telling me, you know, I was on, back back from my days at Fox, and they were saying, oh, you should become a Republican. And I'm like, you know, a little bit of history. Why would a black person become a Republican? What did they have to offer me? And they said, freedom. And I'm like, Man, we need to eat. We don't need symbolic right. crap. Black folks, a lot of them are in the the working poor, the working class, and the poor. That symbolic stuff don't work for us, right? That's what I thought of because there was nothing but symbolism, the flag-waving glory, uh, democracy versus autocracy, and people need to eat. And And it seems like— is that kind of a sign of how far to the right they're drifting? What are your anyway? What are your thoughts on all of that? What good is democracy if it does not make your life materially better? The idea that we need to save democracy, which has which has left us, which has left most of us poorer, hungrier, uh, angrier than ever. I I don't see the sense of it. But you know, uh, people like Joe Biden, the Democrats, uh, you know, uh, Barack Obama, who was campaigning for. Uh, and campaigning in Georgia for the Democratic Senator Warnock, you know, they don't seem to have uh, 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 any kind of uh, uh, contact with regular people. It reminds me very much of the famous story the New York Times ran. Uh, was a columnist, uh, she was a reporter there for the White House, Maureen Dow. And during the 1992 campaign uh, with George Bush, the father, uh, against Clinton, she wrote this story about George Bush going into a supermarket right. mm-hmm. and being just kind of fascinated by uh, the, 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 the uh, uh, way that they scanned items. Right. right. Yeah. They, they scanned items. And he had never seen that. She wrote this piece to show how out of touch he was. And a lot of people credit that story was really kind of turning the tide. I don't, I think it was recession, but still it certainly had some impact. Um, but I think that's the way that these, that, that, that people like Joe, Joe Biden and many people in power are today. They have no really, they have no real contact with regular people. And just to, just to end this story, conclude the story, I was in Safeway just two days ago, and I, I just found this fascinating. An older black woman, she's shopping, and she's kind of talking to me, kind of talking to herself, and she's talking about a tub of, I think, macaroni and cheese is what she was complaining about. She said, that don't make no sense. It was, it was just $5.99 a couple of weeks ago. Now it's $10.99. That don't make no sense. Now, do you think that woman is inspired to vote for the Democrats? I, it's just not. It's, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And if she is inspired, to, if she does vote for the Democrats, you know, she's got sisters and cousins who won't. If they vote at all. Exactly. They're going to stay home. They're going to rake leaves on Tuesday. Exactly. And, exactly. And, and to tie this into, into the next story, Joe Biden talks about democracy, democracy, democracy. Well, why can't you provide for democracy in Haiti? Why are you anti-democracy in Venezuela? Why are you anti-democracy in Nicaragua? Help me understand, Joe Biden, if, if, if democracy is under threat here in the United States, and we could even debate that conversation. I mean, the country did survive a civil war. And he did rob Bernie twice. Uh, I don't know about that democracy. Right. <laughs> well, there you go. Yes, he did. So, so <laughs> this whole idea of the United States going to the United Nations in order to circumvent the United uh, UN peacekeeping force in Haiti, which really isn't needed. All you need to do is let the Haitians work this thing out for themselves. John Jeter. Haiti for the Haitians, Africans for the Africans, Venezuela for the Venezuelans. What this country, what this world needs desperately right now is self-determination. And for the West, 
which is going to, the West is going to get out of the way one way or another, right? It's going, it's going to be the easy way or the hard way, but the West is going to get out of the way. And so I, I agree with you as usual, 100%, doctor. This is uh, our attempts to impose democracy, which we don't even enjoy here in the United States, right? If the people want one thing and keep getting an keep getting its other. Is that democracy? We want health care. We don't get it. We want uh, we want jobs. We want we want to get out of these these military adventures and we don't get it. So we don't even have democracy at home. Uh, and, and certainly what they're imposing on the rest of the world, which, by the way, the rest of the world is not. You know, I don't want to call Americans dumb, at least not in this venue. But I will say this. They are they are vastly misinformed. Right. And so the rest of the world, the Venezuelans, the Brazilian, you watch out for what's going to happen in Brazil coming up. Right. I, I, I suspect I very much suspect that we will see Lula take a very leftward shift because he realizes the reason that he uh, got jammed up by Bolsonaro and his people, uh, that he got locked up on these trumped-up charges was because he didn't serve the needs of the people, particularly, particularly, and he's hit on this in some interviews, the black population, which is larger in Brazil than any country outside of Africa, right? And so I suspect that you're going to see a response of Lula in a way that you you see an unresponsive United States uh, to its population, the same in France, the same in Germany, although I think those countries are going to have some very real social upheavals very, very soon. Uh, and so, yeah, there's just this disconnect now, which which is so ironic that Jimmy Carter, of all people, warned us about this, what, uh, almost oh, 45 years ago, right? This growing disconnect between the, the our representatives in the halls of Congress and the White House uh, and the governor's matches and the people. And now we've come to this sort of uh, denouement, as the as the French would say, right, where it's all coming to a head. Uh, we're in that interregnum, if I can sort of switch metaphors again and go with Gramsci. And, and you know, the, the old is dying and the new cannot be born. But, you know, at some point, something's got to give. And I think we're very, very quickly coming up to that point. You know, um, I, I, we talked about Haiti, and I think it's important to, uh, to talk about Africa, too. Those are two areas where the United States is, you know, pushing their proxy war against Russia and China. Wait, b- before oh, you ahead. do that, oh, sure, I, go ahead, go ahead, let go me ahead. ask just one yes, more sir. follow-up question on the on the Haiti, but more so the, the Nicaragua and Brazil piece. We, 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 we were talking uh, yesterday, the day before, that the United States is now imposing sanctions on Nicaragua. And we've been talking about on this show since last year with these new wave of elections and these countries turning left, what was the United States going to do? And it seems now imposing sanctions may be one of the mechanisms that the United States uses to extract its pound of flesh from these countries that are throwing out the neoliberal governments and imposing or uh, voting for uh, more more socialist-leaning governments, do you think that the United States will try to impose sanctions on Brazil the way the United States is now imposing sanctions on Nicaragua? I would be shocked if they didn't at least talk about it, discuss it. The problem, of course, is that, and I think Lula has, has said this publicly, he's proposed a, a Latin American currency, right, which is right. what got uh, Colonel Gaddafi killed in, mm-hmm. or one of the things that got Colonel Gaddafi killed in Libya. And so w- what now in this interregnum, again, mm-hmm. um, uh, if I can, we're, we're pushing, you have to sort of look at this as a whole, right? And so what's happened in Ukraine with Russia, you know, despite what the mainstream media says, Russia is winning, Russia is going to win that war. And we're seeing shift, which by the way, Vladimir Putin has very, uh, eloquently pointed to right a mm-hmm. shift away from the West, and and that 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 is resonating 
with the rest of the world in Africa and particularly in Latin America, where you see Argentina, you see Brazil forming, uh, uh, you see Saudi Arabia, for God's sake, joining with the BRICS countries, right? Uh, and, and they're shifting away from the U.S. dollar uh, as the international reserve currency, meaning that more and more trades are being made in currencies other than the United States dollar. So these sanctions against Nicaragua are just going to accelerate that. There's going to be some pain, right? It's still, it's still, uh, it's still the international reserve currency. It's still used in most international transactions. But we're seeing a shift, a tectonic shift, right? And I don't think it's going to be, um, I don't think it's going to be years necessarily before we start to see uh, 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 the, the the real impact. I think we're talking about months combined with everything else that's going on, where we see the 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 the, the declining power of the dollar to control population to control leftists and progressive nations that want to do things for their people. So, yeah, I think this is going to backfire. Just like the war in Ukraine is backfire, right? It, it, we, can, we can clearly see a shift towards the East, towards Russia and China as an axis, if you will, uh, towards spheres of power that other countries are going to not obey, but fall into line with those countries, right? They see their futures as 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 aligned with China and Russia, as opposed to the United States, France, and the UK. I mean, the UK, I just, I just heard yesterday, I think they're raising interest rates to about 4%, which is what they are in the United States, uh, uh, bank lending rates to 4%. They're predicting the longest recession, not the deepest, but the longest recession in British history. Uh, they're in trouble. They're in very real trouble. And there's no discussion about that here in the United States. Uh, there is some in the West, but not in, in Europe, but not much in the United States. And, and we see this realignment happening. And, and it's sort of it's sort of invisible to us. It's almost like a, it's almost like a covert uh, uh, attack that's happening. And, and we just none of us can see it or very few of us can see it. Well, you know, a quick comment on that. I think with Saudi Arabia and other te- uh, countries looking to, to join BRICS, um, Lula has a tremendous amount of leverage right now. And the other thing is with Nicaragua there, um, they are looking at sanctioning the gold mines. Well, that's perfect place for Russia and China to come in, for Brazil to come in. And because they're looking at a a, a commodity-backed currency, boom, lots of gold, you, that, that helps that cause. But I do want to throw this out because this is very important. Ethiopia now Here's what I see. They were just about to crush the TPLF. And as the TPLF was about to get routed, they said, you know, perhaps we can work this out with some kind of a secession of secession of hostilities. And that was the United States dog in that fight. Another uh, another L on the mat. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, exactly. You know, and, and something that we, we we just don't another thing that we just don't talk about enough in the United States is the is the militarization of Africa that began after 9-11 under Bush, but dramatically expanded under under Obama. Uh, Trump actually pushed back a little and I'm not uh, in Trump's camp. I don't. Uh, support him in any way, shape, or form. But he did push back. He did scale down the militarization of Africa. And now, of course, Joe Biden is ramping it up again. So it's, it's something we don't talk enough about because, and you know, this this doesn't get said enough either, right? Uh, the United States, uh, and, and you know, you can call me Captain Obvious, but I think it needs to be said out loud. The United States only sees Africa and Africans as sources of exploitation. In other words, if you're not making money for them, you're of no use to them. A, a, a very a very famous Detroiter named uh, General Baker once said this about the riots in 1967, that, you know, it was this, it was this military, military zone and people couldn't get out. 
unless you showed your ID that you worked for Ford or General Motors or Chrysler. And then they would let you go to work. And he said that they realized, many of the blacks realized that their only usefulness to whites was as workers, right? Uh, uh, we're not in a period of work now, but we're still in a period of exploitation, right? Of this sort of hyper souped up capitalism. And so, you know, this is this is the problem that we have to face in terms of Africa, in terms of Haiti. Right? We've always seen Haiti as this extraction zone, uh, going back to 1915 when we sent troops there uh, putatively to to protect Americans. But actually, the first thing they did was they went to the bank and took out the money that they thought the the Haitians owed them, owed Citibank. Uh, uh, which I can't remember what Citibank was at the time, but owed Citibank basically for uh, the bonds they had purchased for when, when Haiti had sort of brought back its freedom uh, from the French. They sold bonds to do that. So uh, this this is what we, we just have to understand these motivations for the West and for the United States in dealing with the rest of the world. And quickly, you're talking about uh, blacks in Detroit realizing that they were nothing more than labor. That made me think about Du Bois's book, uh, Recon- Black Reconstruction, where he doesn't refer to the enslaved as slaves. He refers to them as black labor because that has been the the, the context in in which uh, in which our value. Uh, has been determined. Uh, final point, switching continents, uh, Netanyahu maintains lead with 65 seats, 92.6% of the vote. Netanyahu is is back in the game as though he ever left. Uh, your thoughts? I, I uh, This is maybe a little bit far afield, but I can't get over the, the backlash that is facing Kanye West and now more recently Kyrie Irving, the, the Nets uh, guard. Um, for for comments that I think I you know I I wouldn't necessarily agree with, uh, but I fail to see how they're anti-Semitic or or how they encourage violence. Uh, but yet we we support uh, Netanyahu. We is, um, support this illegal and immoral occupation of Palestinians. Who, by the way, who by the way are from the biblical region known as Samaria. Uh, Samaria and are therefore Semites. So the largest expression of anti-Semitism in the world today is re- is Israel's occupation of Palestine. So I just, you know, it's, uh, what, what did Fred have to say? Answers that don't answer, conclusions that don't conclude, mm-hmm. explanations that don't explain. That's just, I just, I must, I must say that to myself at least once a day these days. <laughs> and and, and it, it, it would be funny if it, if it weren't so serious because in listening to uh, Kyrie Irving and the question of, are you anti-Semitic? He says, I can't be if I know who I am. And, right, and right. that answer just seemed to go right by, because the report says, but people are really just looking for a yes or a no. And he, and he said, he said, you keep asking me the same questions and I keep giving you the same answer. I can't be if I know who I am. He, he seems like a man who's searching. He doesn't have all the answers, but he's at least asking the questions. And I, I applaud him. I wish there were more uh, NBA ath- athletes with his platform who were doing the same thing. I don't think he's anti-Semitic. I don't think he means to be anti-Semitic. I don't think he's encouraging violence against Jewish people. Uh, but you know, there's this, there are these narratives that we that we sort of are stuck with, and we can't quite break free of them. And until we do, we're stuck in this in this this. Uh, uh, Time warp. Disaster. Yeah, <laughs> catastrophe. John Jeter, this Nakba. D- John Jeter, thank you very much as always for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. 
Thank you, brother. I can't wait to be back. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Jobs report shows payrolls grew by 261,000 in the month of October. The unemployment rate rose to 3.7%, and labor force participation rate fell slightly. These are the last numbers before the midterms, and so what are we to make of all of this? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He holds a Ph.D. in political economy, teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California. He's the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. He is Dr. Jack Rasmus. As always, Jack, welcome back. Always glad to be with you. So U.S. employers added 261,000 jobs in the month of October, which is reported as a sign of continued resilience in the labor market. The jobless rate rose to 3.7 percent. And they also report that the October payroll numbers marked a decline from last month's upwardly revised 315,000 jobs, according to the Labor Department. Jack, can you put this in a context, not only in terms of what these numbers mean, but also as we look at the Fed and their interest rate hikes and looking at the fact that it seems as though the Fed is using the pretext of inflation uh, to raise interest rates really in an attempt to lower wages. Your thoughts? Yeah. Well, first of all, as I always say when we talk about the job uh, numbers here every month that uh, uh, there are two surveys you got to keep in mind for all these numbers. Uh, one survey is called uh, the Establishment Survey. It's uh, very large corporations, medium and very large size corporations provide the data to uh, the government every month. That's where you get this number, 261,000, right? Uh, the other survey, the population survey, where the Labor Department surveys people, picks up small businesses better. What you got is a totally contradictory number. Total employment, according to the other survey, population survey, is down 343,000. So one survey shows you got a 261,000 increase. The other shows total employment went down 343,000. Uh, you know, cherry pick whichever one you want. Uh, now you get to the unemployment rate, right? Uh, the unemployment rate is only determined by the second survey, the population survey. Uh, that, that's where the government interviews, calls and interviews 60,000 people a month. Okay. Uh, you got 3.7%. Right, I think it uh, you know ticked up by one percent, one tenth of one percent, or something like that, or two tenths of one percent. Uh, okay, three point seven. That is only full time workers. That doesn't include uh, any part time or temp worker or gig worker 
who lost the job. All right. So, and it doesn't, by the way, it, it, and it double counts too. It counts uh, pretty much uh, if you've got two jobs. Oh, you know, oh, jobs are growing. Jobs are growing, but employed people may not be growing if the jobs that are being added are part time jobs. Right? That's another issue here with this uh, report and data. So keep in mind, 3.7, even with the government's own uh, uh, statistics, if you count the part-time temp and the people who dropped out of the labor force, you've got uh, 6.8%, not 3.7% unemployed. And that number, for reasons I'm not going to get into, is also a low-ball number, even 6.8%. Uh, so, you know, you... You still got what? 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 Six point eight percent of one hundred and fifty-eight million. Um, you know, you got tens of millions of people still jobless out there. Uh, so you got to understand how they get to these numbers. And even I would add the, the two hundred sixty-one thousand from the establishment survey is a statistic. It's not the actual number of jobs created. It's not the raw data of the number of jobs. Let me explain why. Uh, statistics mean you manipulate the raw data with certain assumptions and procedures to get another number called the statistic. 261,000 is a statistic. How do they get that? Well, they manipulate the raw data report that is sent to the labor department by larger businesses. Because remember, this is the establishment survey. Uh, and they do a seasonality manipulation on it to come up with a statistic. But that's not the only operation they do on the raw data. They do what's called this new business development assumptions. Uh, new businesses, how many new businesses that month uh, started out and they all have employees, right? Versus how many went under and how many employees they lost, what's the net difference between businesses that were created every month and businesses that were lost every month. That's a raw data. Except that raw data they use from six to nine months prior to the current report. So they look back and they take the raw data from April, April to June when the economy was opening up and a lot of new businesses were forming, right? They take that higher than average period of raw data and then they smish it together, you know, with the report from the uh, uh, large, large companies and they get a combined raw data, right? And then they do their statistical manipulations on that. The other problem with this net new business development is not only they had more businesses forming in the spring than those who were going out of business. Most of them went out of business during COVID. Right, not during the reopening. Reopening, you had businesses forming, right? Uh, but there's no way to know what that real gap is because while they may know how many new businesses formed last spring, they have no idea how many went out of business last spring. Because if you go out of business, you don't necessarily report to the government that you went out of business. You got to report if you start a business, but you don't report when you go out of business, right? So what do they use for the number that went out of business? Uh, a long-term historical average. 
So you see, there's a lot of manipulations on this stuff. Um, so I'm always dubious about these unemployment and unemployment numbers because there's so many contradictions between the two surveys and the methods and statistics and all that nonsense. And I think Jay Powell is too, Jerome Powell, uh, the Fed chair, you know, because he keeps looking not at the unemployment rate, you know, listen to him in his press conferences. He's always talking about, oh, job quits and job openings and participation. He's looking hard everywhere else <laughs> because the U3, the big thing that unemployment rate and the uh, uh, establishment new jobs created, uh, he knows these things are not all that reliable. That, 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 that's my uh, perennial monthly pitch <laughs> on these numbers. Uh, don't put a lot of trust in them. At best, they may show a trend direction. But uh, the numbers themselves, I don't put much trust in. Well, that's a perfect segue, particularly since you mentioned Jerome Powell into our next article. Common Dreams, lawmakers to Powell. How many millions will be thrown out of their jobs due to Fed policy? In a new letter, members of Congress, led by Elizabeth Warren, take Fed Chair Powell, Powell take Fed Chair Jerome Powell to task over his, quote, apparent disregard for the livelihoods of millions of working Americans. Dr. Rasmus. Yeah, well, you know, Jerome Powell and the Fed have decided there will be a recession. The only thing undecided is how deep will it be? But more and more people are saying it's going to be pretty deep uh, because, you know, we've had four 75 basis point rate hikes and inflation isn't moving very much, is it? It's not moving because it's supply-driven, and the Fed can't do a damn thing about supply-side inflation. Supply-side being in global supply chains, corporate price gouging, sanctions on global commodities because of the Ukraine war, and, of course, the war itself affecting supply. And now you've got uh, the emerging problem, in addition to all that, of productivity collapsing in the U.S., when productivity collapses, and it has for three months in a row, the worst string of collapses since 1982, when productivity collapses, corporate and business unit labor costs rise, not because of wage increases, but because of productivity collapses. Wages aren't moving much. Uh, and, of course, when it collapses, their cost per unit of output rises, and guess what they do? They pass it on to the consumer. So now we got another new factor here in the mix, unit labor costs, productivity collapse, on top of all those supply-side reasons. And in my view, that means over half of the current inflation of officially 8% plus 3 or whatever uh, is supply-side problems, global problems, slow down productivity, meaning businesses aren't investing. Uh, and that's what's driving inflation. And you can raise rates all you want, Mr. Fed, and you can cause as deep a recession as you want, Mr. Fed, but it isn't going to shake out inflation. They will shake out maybe a third or a half at most of the current 8%. That means next year we're still going to be in a deep recession dealing with supply side, another factor, inflation of around three and a half to four percent, no matter how deep the recession goes. Because this thing is a global structuring and a capitalist structuring problem that the Fed 
can't do anything about. And I would add, by the way, uh, it's even worse in Europe and other countries, the inflation, because on top of everything I said is causes of inflation, there you have an additional cause, and that is the collapse of their currencies, which raise their import prices. And in Europe and Japan and elsewhere, it's collapsed. Their currencies have collapsed over 20%. Why? Because the Fed has been raising rates which drive up the U.S. dollar. The dollar is the global linchpin. It serves the function that gold used to used to serve decades ago. So if the dollar goes up, everything else, other currencies go down, and that raises their import inflation. Uh, so, and by the way, you know, if the dollar goes up because of the Fed, that that dampens our inflation here in the U.S. Right, but it exacerbates inflation elsewhere. So you got Europe, which is really being whacked by the sanctions and the war policy driven by the U.S. fiscal policy, political policy. On top of that, uh, Europe in, in Britain are getting whacked because of U.S. Federal Reserve monetary policy and the dollar. You don't hear them complain much about that, right? <laughs> Over in Europe, but this problem in Europe, this economic problem in Europe of you know double-digit inflation. By the way, the results just came out. They're all double-digit now in, in Europe, even Germany. Uh, that this is made in the USA, but you don't hear uh, van der Leyden or any of those people over there saying, oh, hey, U.S., uh, you know, you're screwing us. Uh, and, uh, of course, the people are in the streets over this, but you won't hear that in the U.S. media. Progressive economists warn of catastrophic outcomes for workers as Fed hikes interest rates. Memo to the Fed, interest rate hikes aren't working because inflation is being driven by corporations using it as cover to price gouge the people. This is according to former Labor Secretary Robert Reich. Your thoughts, Jack Rasmus? Yeah, that's part of it. You know, uh, I mean, all these factors on the supply side cause prices to rise and then large American corporations that are monopolistic, in other words, they have control over their marketplace because they're just a couple of players, right? Uh, they just pass those prices on uh, from supply side and whatever rising uh, to us. And by the way, they mark up a little bit more case for themselves, right? On top of it, they use the rising prices to raise their prices even more than the cost of those rising prices. And they're grouching the hell out of us. The oil companies, of course, are grouching the hell out of us. Mm -hmm. And now, uh, you know, the natural gas and the diesel and everything, home heating oil, they're going to get us this winter here. Uh, on top of that, you've got concentration monopolies, uh, near monopolies in uh, baked goods. And there's only three or four cereal makers and bread makers in this country. And the same with meat packers and producers, right? And the same with dairy distributors uh, and poultry. Uh, and these guys can raise the prices uh, because they can, right? And what does Biden do about it? Oh, you know, he talks the talk, you know, make it look okay before the election here. He's not going to do a damn thing about these people. Um, so we got to bear the burden. And uh, yeah, uh, real incomes, real wages are going south again. Dr. Rasmus, you know, it seems to me that, as you said, the Fed has decided they're going to create a 
a, a, you know, a, an economic downturn, whatever it, it turns out to be, you know, depression, recession, whatever the case may be. And uh, it almost seems like th- that's their plan to slow up um, uh, um, the issues of, of, you know, supply chain issues, et cetera, because let's face it, if nobody has any money to buy anything, hey, you don't have to worry about the sal- supply chain. Here's my question. Just like foreign policy, so many times in the U.S. foreign policy, are we looking at something that it's possible that they've, they may be starting a disaster that they can't contain, that it could spin out of control? Okay, we're going to do this, 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 and all of a sudden it spins into a downward spiral out of control. Is that a possibility here? Yeah, you, you see uh, uh, the U.K. on the precipice of just that, right? Uh, that's the, the worst basket case in, in these, uh, a, you know, advanced economies, G7, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that, that's the harbinger, maybe, of what's what's possibly going to come. But see, you've got to realize, as in the UK, uh, in the US, when you have inflation like that, uh, owners of securities and financial assets see the paper value of their wealth decline by 20, 25 percent, and they get upset. And they put pressure on their politicians and they say, look, you've got to do something about this because our asset values are falling. Uh, so what do you do uh, to prevent the inflation from you know, reducing their asset values? Well, you attack inflation. How do you attack inflation? You could attack it fiscally by cutting spending. Oh, but they got to give uh, Ukraine $100 billion, right? And they got to prepare for the war against China. So they're not going to do that. Uh, what's the only game in town? Oh, get the Fed to jack up interest rates, monetary policy. And that's what's going on. You see, so you've got to look behind the policies. You know, economic, fiscal, monetary policies are just the symptom. They're the appearance, the essence, the reality is below all that. It's who makes these policies. Is it just the politicians? No. It's the people who own the politicians who tell them. That's why the Fed is, quote, independent, you know? So you can't uh, uh, interfere with the Fed policy. Well, that's not totally true, uh, but that's the way, uh, you know, the big finance capitalists and bankers want it. Uh, They want them, when it's necessary, to raise uh, rates to shake out inflation and protect their bond values, right? Or when they... They, the banks and the finance capitalists, get out of whack and go too far, and they start uh, going bankrupt. Well, then the Fed comes in and bails them out. You see, that's the function of the Fed to bail them out when they get in trouble, and in good times, uh, you know, protect the asset values. The annual military budget could hit one trillion by 2027. What does that do? What does that type of spending do to the American economy? Well, first of all, <clears throat> they're only referring to the Pentagon budget. Right. There's more to the military budget than just the Pentagon. The mm-hmm. Pentagon's the you know the big gorilla. It's over eight hundred billion now. But you've got to add another couple hundred billion, three hundred billion maybe, because there's other cubby holes that they they uh, right. put some of their spending. I mean, like uh, all, all the oil uh, consumed by the U.S. military, and it's the biggest consumer of oil in the world, by the way, bigger than any other country. Uh, uh, where does that come from? Oh, that's in the energy budget. That's not in the Pentagon budget. And you can say the same with atomic energy and the development of nuclear arms and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, veterans affairs and all that. It's over a trillion now. And by 2027, 
the way the U.S. Uh, you know empire is getting aggressive and picking fights all over. Uh, you know you can expect uh, uh, two trillion here. I would say you know by wow. the middle of the decade. Okay. I think so. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Always ready to join you. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Consortium News has a piece entitled, A Dangerous, Bloody, and Dirty Game. Vladimir Putin's address at the Valdai Club last week, coming on the heels of the Biden administration's release of its national security strategy, shows how the battle lines have been drawn. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer who served in the former Soviet Union implementing arms control treaties in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and in Iraq overseeing the disarmament of WMD. His most recent book is Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, and he's the author of this piece. Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Thanks for having me. You write, Russian President Putin's keynote address at the Valdai Club last Thursday appears to have put Russia on a collision course with the U.S.-led rules-based international order. The, the newspaper The Hill reports Russian President Vladimir Putin declared jihad against the West in a recent speech delivered at the Valdai Discussion Club in Moscow. Scott, can you help uh, kind of square the circle in terms of this com- confusion between your interpretation of uh, President Putin's speech and what the Hill seems to have heard? Well, I think what the Hill heard is that uh, President Putin was indicating that the uh, era of the rules-based international order, that being uh, a set of organizations and, um, you know, non-treaty-related understandings uh, that was implemented by the United States at the end of the Second World War, that that era is over. Um, He didn't say Russia is going to kill it. He didn't say Russia was declaring war on it. He said the era was over, finished, done. Run its course. Time has come and gone, yeah. And that in place will be a new law-based international order. And he indicated that the rules-based international order may opt not to go gently into that good night, but Mm. instead rage, rage against the dying of the light. And that's my Dylan Thomas uh, (laughs) (laughs) quote. But um, And if that's the case, then we are in, you know, this is going to be a dirty and dangerous game. But he's not declaring war. He actually is straight out said in his speech, Russia is not looking to supplant the United States. Russia is not seeking to replace the United States. Russia is not seeking to defeat the United States. Russia simply wants to live in peaceful harmony and, and, you know, uh, with, with, you know, peaceful coexistence with the United States, uh, that if there's going to be any problems, the problems are going to come from the United States 
which is going to be resisting what appears to be the global uh, decision to gravitate away from an American singularity to a global multipolarity. You know, Scott, I think a, a perfect example is, I don't know if it was yesterday or today, but President Biden recently said that they're go, that he wants to, quote, free Iran. And the, and the Iranians said we were freed 43 years ago. So you got the wrong time. It's their it's Iran's decision. But what do you think about based on, you know, what what that Val, Val Dye speech and put uh, uh, President Biden's, quote, free Iran comment in that context? Well, I mean, it's it's. it's you read the, the Valdai speech and you, you know, I mean, let's, let's just say I pluck somebody out of nowhere and they read it. Um, they, I, I think they would come away saying, man, that, that Putin certainly got something out for the United States. I mean, he's, he's exaggerating what's going on here. He's turned the United States into a cartoon character. Um, nobody could be what the United States is the way Putin's portrayed it. Uh, this is ridiculous. And then you go read the national security strategy. That was posted by the Biden administration, and you say, "Whoa, Putin took it easy on them," because the national security strategy is almost a joke in in, in the way it's a parody of itself. Um, it, it literally portrays the United States as not only an exceptional nation, and and Putin did you know uh, take exception to that. He, he said, "Any nation that calls itself exceptional, you know." has a problem with the rest of the world, but we are the indispensable nation. This, you know, we are leading a struggle of democracy against autocracy. And again, that's something that Putin took umbrage at. He, he said to democracy, um, we're a democracy. You just don't support it. China has democratic aspects. Democracy is flourishing around the world, but it's not an American dominated democracy. America isn't pursuing democracy. America is actually pursuing American autocracy in its relationship with the world. The rules-based international order is the antithesis of a democratic relationship. It's more of an autocratic relationship. So, you know, that that's sort of the contrast that Putin is pointing out. Now, you know, the interesting thing is around the world, every I think most of the world sat up and listened to the Valdai speech. It was an important speech. Um, in the United States, we, we get you know, we trivialize it with things such as the Hill, you know, declares jihad. He didn't declare jihad. What a stupid thing to say. What an utterly irresponsible thing to say. And yet that mirrors much of the message that is being given to the American people about, you know, what you know Putin has said. And very little attention is being paid to the national security strategy. I mean, it's mentioned that we you know, that has been published. There's some attention on Biden's failure to comply with his promise uh, regarding, you know, the uh, single purpose for American nuclear weapons. But by and large, uh, you know, nobody's digging deep. They're just saying, yep, strong America, strong America, USA, USA. And that's it. That's the depth of their analysis. And by going down that path, they're missing out on some very important uh, markers that Russia was putting down. Um, and, you know, by ignoring those markers, you know, Americans are going to be somewhat shocked down the road as they see uh, their country in retrograde. And they're going to say, well, how did this happen? Biden was telling us everything was great. Biden was telling us that we're the exceptional nation, that the world can't live without us. And now we're finding out that not only can the world live without us, they don't really want us to be here. We're the bad guys. How did this happen? It happened because we don't pay attention to A, what our leaders say, and B, what the rest of the world is saying about us.
I want to combine a couple of stories. One, U.S. says Iran is not trying to build a nuclear weapon. This is an antiwar.com. Despite the admission, Biden administration officials are threatening military action to stop Iran from acquiring a nuclear bomb. The Pentagon's new nuclear posture review says the U.S. believes Iran is not pursuing a nuclear weapon, but the Biden administration officials are still threatening military action against Tehran to prevent it from acquiring one, which means we're threatening military action against a nation to prevent it from acquiring something it has said and we now recognize it isn't trying to get. And then the second story is, U.S. sees no indication Russia is preparing to use nuclear weapon. Putin recently said he has no plans to use nukes in Ukraine. The Biden administration said Wednesday it has seen no indication that Russia is preparing to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Scott, I'm combining these two stories together because back in August, we heard Russia's talking about using nukes. Russia's talking about using nukes. And now here we are in November, and we're saying, ah, well, that's not, there's no indication that that was true. And going back to Iran, we've been hearing nuclear program, nuclear program, nuclear program. Now the administration admits, well, no, that's not really happening. What's bringing about this shift in narrative, even though it doesn't seem to result in a shift in policy? Well, with Russia, the the answer is um, we don't want a nuclear war. And if you're out there, oh, that's a good you know, that's a good answer. Hmm. And you know, we we don't want a nuclear war, and yet we were feeding a frenzy that made nuclear war. You, I mean, I'll give Joe Biden this when he made his Armageddon remark to fundraisers, which I have condemned, and I believe I'm right for condemning. Um, you know, at least he was articulating that. Armageddon's a bad thing. Um, and, and, and his whole spiel was that Russia shouldn't be talking about it. Um, and I think the United States is finally waking up to the fact that as long as they um, are creating an environment that encourages people to speculate about the potential, however unfounded that potential is, of nuclear combat conflict, you're making nuclear conflict part of the daily dialogue mm-hmm. and you're lowering people's, you know, uh, abhorrence of it. It becomes an acceptable thing. And you're almost, you're almost speaking it into existence. That's, that's exactly right. So I think the Biden administration finally went, well, we, we got to nip this thing in the bud. Russia's not trying to nuke anybody. And we're just, we're, we're done with this conversation. And that's the smartest move possible because now you remove it so that, you know, if it's ever raised again, it should cause everybody in the world to sit up and go, whoa, 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 what? Nuclear? No, no, we don't talk about nuclear. We don't do nuclear. We don't want that. As opposed to last week, every other word was nuclear. And uh, so I think the Biden administration is nipping the bud. With Iran, it's it's similar. Um, by hyping the, you know, I, I know why the Biden administration was doing it. I don't agree with their strategy, but they were hyping the nuclear threat uh, as a sort of a backhanded way of pressuring Iran to uh, accept the joint comprehensive program of action. Now, the, the JCPOA is all but dead. It, um, I, I think it is dead. They just, it's like Bernie, um, you know, they're just going to carry the body around and, and pretend for a while. Um, but the, you know, Israel, you know, has been saying, well, we, we can attack Iran. We can attack Iran. And Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia has been saying, well, if Iran has a nuclear weapon, then we have to acquire a nuclear weapon and da, 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 da. And I think what this is doing is uh, basically saying, 
there is no nuclear threat. They're trying to to, to tamp down the uh, the rhetoric in the same way to reduce the possibility of um, of, of of conflict. Uh, you know, there's always the talk. We always we have to always reassure Israel that we'll be there for them. We're going to hold your hand. And yes, we're here to kick the nasty Iranians in the teeth if they ever try some stuff. But every, you know, the problem is the Israelis every once in a while say, "Okay, we're ready to go kick some teeth in." And the U.S. is like, no, nah, we, uh, we're not doing that. But if we pretend that Iran is pursuing a nuclear weapon, that makes the Israeli um, urges to attack Iran, you know, become possibly real. So we're putting a marker on the table saying that, um, you know, there's no need to bomb Iran today because they're not pursuing a nuclear weapons program. But there's a difference because what the Israeli position is, is even if they're not pursuing a nuclear weapons program, they're developing the technologies which could be used to pursue a nuclear weapons program if Iran decided to do so. And those technologies, while they're permitted under the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, um, Israel's position and the United States has adopted that position is that in and of itself uh, gives Iran a nuclear weapons capability. Uh, the potential to build a weapon is a nuclear weapons capability that Israel finds unacceptable. And so that's why... You have the United States also putting a marker down that says we will never allow uh, Iran to develop a nuclear weapons capability and, you know, there will be harsh action. So that, that it seems inherently contradictory, but it's it's actually part and parcel of the same policy. You know, Scott, I did want to ask you this. Um, we're seeing Iran's, at minimum, Iran's technology being used in uh, the Ukraine conflict effectively. We now know that Iran has uh, some, we've seen that they have some effective anti-aircraft, um, th- uh, you know, that they've created. Your thoughts, and now, you know, there are rumors abound <laughs> that the, the Russians either, you know, may be using missiles. The bottom line is this. It appears that Iran's military technology has uh, significantly um, improved, and they've said if we wanted one, we got the technology to build one. We don't want one. What are your thoughts about the the Iran's military technology and how the use of it in the conflict in Ukraine has kind of maybe changed the tune about Iran's military ability? Well, I mean, I've always said for some time now that the West has been um, minimizing uh, Iran's military potential. And a lot of that is, frankly speaking, racist. You know, uh, uh, you know, there's no way that a bunch of brown people can be as smart as the white people over here, especially when the white people over here bring Asians into their college and we, we have this mathematical advantage and we're so good and we're so strong. That's why the Iranians win almost every mathematical Olympiad in the world. Uh, they place, you know, they put three, four teams in the top 10 every year. Um, the Iranians have more peer-reviewed PhD theses uh, published every year than any other nation in the Middle East. Indeed, more than many European countries. The Iranians are pretty darn smart. And smart people, when they're presented with uh, problems, come up with solutions. And the solution to the United States and the Gulf Arab states and Israel all focusing in on Iran wasn't to build a nuclear bomb. They could have, but they rightly said that will cause far more problems than it solves. The solution is to develop the military capability to do extensive harm, indeed potentially fatally fatal harm, to the Gulf Arab states and Israel uh, using conventional weapons should they decide to go to war. And uh, what makes 
that, that gives, you know, a, a bite to the bark, so to speak, is the accuracy of the Iranian systems, the guidance and control uh, systems that they have developed. Um, they, this gives them pinpoint accuracy at long distances, which means in a state as small as Israel, uh, if the Iranians know where a specific asset that they want to hit is in a specific building in a specific room, they will put something through that window um, 100% of the time. Um, and they have lots of them, so that's a lot of windows being hit. They can also uh, eradicate the entire oil production capacity of Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Bahrain, and other Gulf Arab countries if they wanted to. So they're basically putting the marker down that says, uh, go to war with us at your own risk. Yes, you can do harm to us, but you will cease to exist. And, um, and that's in a non-nuclear manner. You know, and the United States woke up to this reality after we assassinated Qasem Soleimani when the Iraqi or the Iranians fired, uh, a, I think, a dozen or so uh, missiles at the Al-Assad base where the Americans were. Um, you know, afterwards, we realized they hit with pinpoint accuracy everything they were aiming at. Um, and that woke us up. I mean, even the American generals are saying this took us by surprise. Uh and that wasn't even the good stuff. Uh, you know, the Iranians didn't use the good stuff. And even if um, Iran ends up selling uh, Russia missiles that are they're used against Ukraine, that's not the good stuff. The good stuff is still in reserve waiting to be used against Israel if Israel wants to play that game or uh, being used against Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Kuwait and other Gulf Arab states. The Iranians are a top notch military power. And um I think the world is starting to recognize that. I know Europe is. Europe is basically panicked because the Iranian drones expose the reality that Europe has no defense against that kind of threat to its critical infrastructure, that a nation equipped with these kinds of drones could put all of Europe mm. into the dark mm -hmm. uh, overnight. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Have a wonderful weekend. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. After denying they had it, why is the FBI now trying to hide info about Seth Rich shooting from the public for 66 years? On July 10th, 2016, Seth Rich, then 27, a Democratic Party aide, was shot twice in the back in Washington, D.C., eventually succumbing to his wounds. I believe they thought that this was a robbery, even though nothing was stolen. In over six years since that murder, more questions than answers remain. And now the FBI, amid numerous questions about the integrity of the agency, has asked a judge to seal evidence from the probe for 66 years, according to Slay News. What are we to make of this? Well, it's Friday, so that means it's panel time and we're joined by a political activist, independent journalist, podcaster, and analyst, Nico House. As always, Nico, 
Welcome back. As always, it's a pleasure to be back. Appreciate you having me. We're also joined by a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of Will There Be a Nuclear War? Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. Jim, as always, welcome back. Thank you. So, Nico, let me start with you. So even more odd, the former greatest investigatory agency in the world, allegedly, has previously claimed the evidence they are seeking to hide or suppress doesn't even exist, with the outlet reporting the FBI has failed to hand over evidence in the case despite a court order mandating the agency to do so. What is going on here, Nico House? I mean, I feel like this is just the same play that we've been seeing from the FBI, uh, and not just the FBI, but also uh, the, the D.C. Metro Police and how they've handled this, this such separate situation from the beginning. We were told that it was merely a robbery, that there was no evidence suggesting that it was something that could have been a little bit deeper than just simply a robbery. Now, my question would be, if it was simply a robbery, why are we going through these extensive efforts to prevent the evidence from coming out? Because if it is that, then show us and demonstrate to us that there is nothing else to read into. However, I don't know if you all recall, I know, I know Garland does, but we've actually talked about this several times on various shows. The former chief of police, whenever she, she resigned, and the premise was because they were saying, well, it's a robbery, and that's how they're going to treat it. And she said, there's no evidence of that. I don't know why everybody keeps saying it. She said the D.C. Metro Police never agreed that it was a robbery. I don't know why that keeps being put out there. And then shortly after she resigned, because this, has become, that, this had become such a farce of an investigation. Um, and so, in my opinion, that, that alone is emblematic of just how much there clearly is to hide. Uh, and it looks like it would affect some powerful players uh, if, 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 if the evidence was to become public. And... Jim Kavanaugh, this past September, a U.S. district judge for the Eastern District of Texas ordered the FBI to produce the information it possesses related to Seth Seth Rich's laptop. The order was issued by Judge Amos Mazant, gave the FBI 14 days to provide the evidence, and uh, they have refused to do so. The deadline expired on the on the 13th of October with the FBI not providing the information. Jim Cavanaugh, what's going on here? I have no idea. From 14 days to 66 years. I mean, they might as well make it 666 to prove how diabolical they're being. But, uh, you know, this is just silly. You know, I'm agnostic about this issue. The the reason everybody suspects uh, there is suspicion about the Stethridge murder is because of what, you know, Julian Assange said, and he suggested, without saying it, that Sethris might have been the, the leaker that, who gave them the information about the, the emails. But so that's what makes this what, what brought people's attention to this. But the evidence is lacking to, to know anything for certain. The evidence that would be dispositive might very well be on the laptop, of course. So that's why they're hiding it. But this idea that the FBI needs 66 years to investigate, first of all, we didn't have it. Oh, now that we found it, it's going to take us 66 years to do some analysis of it because we don't really know how to do those things. So we're going to have to try and figure it out from scratch. It's silly and nobody buys it. And this is creating, the, for me, it's, it's, it's <clears throat> argued for the idea that there is something suspicious here. And I think that's going to be the case for most people. You know you don't play this game, which is patently phony, that we, we need 66 years to get the information on someone's laptop uh, and expect people to believe it. 
I got to throw something else out there that people might have forgotten. I'll, I'll get right back to you in a minute, Nico. WikiLeaks offered a $20,000 reward for any information leading to the conviction of the killer of Seth Rich. $20,000. i have never known WikiLeaks. I found I, I did a lot of research. I never found another place where WikiLeaks offered a dime for the conviction of a murder of any, or anything else. But for some reason... Julian Assange brought up uh, Seth Rich and talked about in the same in the same conversation he brought up Seth Rich. He also said our sources take significant risks, and then they offered a twenty thousand dollar reward for the. And anybody can look this up. So at any rate, I know you, I, I wanted to throw that out there, but Nico, I see you had something else. Go ahead. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say like the <laughs> fact that they're not off. It's like if so, people were called conspiracy theorists for for merely suggesting. This doesn't look like a robbery. And the, I was suggesting it because the, the chief of police, the former chief of police said it. So that, that's where I was getting all my evidence from at the time before she abruptly retired. And if you wanted to quiet those quote unquote conspiracy theories, why not just release the evidence? Like that's the, that's, it, it's counterproductive to what they're claiming that they want to do. But at the end of the day, the FBI has been lying about this Seth Rich situation from the beginning. That's what I think has bought. I mean, even from the perspective of, uh, of of the DNC fraud lawsuit, which me, Jared, Elizabeth Lee Beck started that went to the Supreme Court. Seth Rich was actually supposed to be one of our key witnesses in that lawsuit before he passed away. And now we find out, like, you know, for those of you who don't understand the context, which I'm sure most of you do by now, the context is he was working at the highest levels of the DNC whenever he passed away around the same time that WikiLeaks happened. Uh, and a bunch of other leaks happened, which eventually caused, you know, Debbie Washington Schultz to have to step down and Hillary to, to be obliterated in the general election when that information dropped. Like the proximity to the DNC, the proximity to power in the DNC, the proximity to the information and data in the DNC, the convenience of it dropping, then him getting killed without them. Supposedly it was a robbery without nothing being taken away. And then the effort by investigative institutions to hide that information as far as the evidence is concerned. And then, of course, lie about what they did and didn't have. That is why everybody is like, we don't believe anything you say. I mean, why should we? <laughs> the FBI has a history of lying and trying to wait until 50, 60, 70 years later to release information or, or unredacted. So uh, we have no reason to believe them. I've always believed that it was more to the story. And I have no reason to change my mind. And does anybody know what he did for the DNC? He was their tech guy. He worked in the computer section. I'm just saying the after while the he's the guy with the thumb drive or the external device that got plugged into the CPU and exactly. uh, wound up copying instead of stuff being hacked. Hmm. I'm just throwing that out there. According, have to hack. Yeah. <laughs> according to the Sydney Morning Herald, Assange lawyers sue CIA for allegedly spying on WikiLeaks founder and his visitors in London. At a press conference in New York, Assange's lawyers said the suit alleges that unbeknown to even the Ecuadorians who granted Assange asylum, the data on their phones and other electronic devices was copied and handed over to the CIA. Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, your thoughts? Yeah, it was the Spanish security agency that they hired, which made the deal you know, behind the backs of the Ecuadorians at the time when, uh, to spy on Assange. So they were handing directly over to the CIA all of the information that they were getting through their 
spying apparatus in the embassy. And, you know, this, of course, is nothing new. I'm glad to see that there's a lawsuit about this. Uh, you know, it, it's absolutely outrageous that he, the, the CIA was spying on Assange and his lawyers, his confidential discussions with his lawyers and everybody else. So the, the, they have a case here for the CIA spying on Americans and spying on a lawyer trying on legal conversations that should be brought. I, I hope this case goes somewhere. I'm not going to bet on it, but you know we've known this. And the the guy who ran the uh, the Spanish security agency acknowledged it that he made a deal with the CIA to hand them everything that they you know, to spy on Assange on their behalf. Nico House, they're suing the CIA and Mike Pompeo. <laughs> I mean, I feel like those go hand in hand, right? Are they even separate at this point? But I would say that, in, in my opinion, it's representative of the fact that they actually never had a case on Assange, right? They claim when they, you know, when they denied his, uh, um, when they, excuse me, approved of his extradition, um, they were claiming these charges are about, oh, he, he hacked something. And, and if that was clear and the evidence is clear, because we know what hacking would look like, we, we know what it would look like, and it doesn't require you to spy on somebody to figure that part out, because you can just do a simple data analysis to find that out. They were looking for ways to smear him. They were looking for ways to, to uh, demean and denigrate his character, which is why you saw allegations about his character ensue very shortly after what, you know, what the spying, uh, when the spying would have started. Uh, they didn't actually have a case. And I think you all remember how many times we've had to go back and just for, for which in my opinion is completely irrelevant because WikiLeaks has a hundred percent, you know, track record, but we have to constantly go back and defend, uh, the character of Julian Assange over things that had nothing to do with the information that was leaked or the validity or lack thereof of them keeping him in the Ecuadorian embassy at the time. Uh, and then eventually moving him to Belmarsh. Like, none of that stuff had to do with anything that was happening with the actual leaks. Uh, and once again, we don't see the CIA spying on those who got exposed. We don't see the, the justice system in the U.S. trying to hold those who got exposed accountable. But instead, the CIA is using our, our uh, well-earned tax dollars to spy on a man who actually was telling the United States citizens the truth about what the empire was doing to them here and, of course, what, they, what has been doing to people abroad. So Common Dreams reports Biden's foreign policy is sinking the congressional Dems and Ukraine. The proxy war between the U.S. and and Russia is devastating Ukraine, ironically, in the name of saving Ukraine. Start with you, Jim. But let me say this. When I talk to the average person, I'll say the two things that I'm hearing. People are a they're afraid of a nuclear war. But this is the other thing I hear. Man, we're sending all that money to Ukraine. And, you know, then they start talking about how expensive it is and how, hey, I bought this chicken last week and it was five dollars and now it's 15. And those two things. And Biden does a, 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 uh, a speech and he's like some symbolic crap about democracy. Your thoughts, Jim? Well, of course, that's what's going to happen. People are saying, hey. You can find a hundred billion dollars to send to Ukraine, but you can't find money for my health care, my child's health care. I mean, people see this and they've got to be able to, you know, say, oh, my God, what's going on here? Why should I accept this? And they are trying to present some kind of story and some kind of narrative once again that we're doing this to prevent, you know, to, 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 for the sake of democracy in the world or peace and freedom in the world or some other baloney. So they have to do that. In order to do that, they have to paint Russia 
as some kind of cartoonish uh, evil villain and Putin as some kind of cartoonish evil villain. And uh, the United States as, you know, the, the sheriff, the good guy, the good cop in the world. It, it, it really is kind of silly, but they get away with doing it. Look, they just put these weapons inspectors. They now acknowledging directly that we have American troops in Ukraine. They're there to ins- make sure the weapons get where they need to do. They're weapons inspectors. This is the advisors going into Vietnam. That's what it is. Is the advanced troops that get the American people inured to the idea that there are American troops in, 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 in Ukraine. And then when those troops get get hit, which they're going to get, they probably will at some point, then it's a tripwire for further American involvement. So this is just an extremely dangerous situation. And people don't want it. Nobody voted for the war in Iraq. Nobody wanted it. And nobody wants this war in Ukraine. And they're going to pay for it in their lives very deeply, not only you know in terms of inflation and monetary costs, but this is going to come back to be very destructive. We're not going to get away with this. Russia is not going to allow a fight with the United States to take place over there. It's coming home. Let me add this, Nico. Biden's foreign policy, the article, Common Dreams, is sinking the congressional dims. And they're sinking themselves. They come out and they write this stinking mealy mouth letter that basically says, yay, let's keep sending lots of money and weapons, blah, blah, blah. And they can't even stand up for that for 24 hours. And I know you're seeing the videos. We're seeing people. Obama got yelled at in um I believe it was Oklahoma. We now see Elizabeth Warren, AOC. We now see people going to these town halls and places where Democrats are speeding, speaking for the midterm, screaming, you're starting a nuclear war. We don't we want this thing over. They're going to pay and they're going to pay dearly for this. And I think starting Tuesday, Nico. Yeah, no, I, I 100 percent agree. Um, you know, with, with the Dems in their mind, they have control over the whole election system anyway. So they don't really believe in consequence for their actions. It's not like the majority of our votes at the federal level, at least, matter all that much until we secure our election systems. But I want to go back to saying, uh, to addressing what Jim said about the troops being in Ukraine. And he's right. I mean, now they're just openly admitting it and claiming it's about weapons inspections. But I know for a fact, because I have friends who still are stationed in Fort Bragg, they had deployed uh, the, I know they deployed the 101st, but they had already started deploying 82nd months ago to, to the Ukraine. And they didn't even, a lot of them didn't even know where they were going, so they got there. So there's that. And the important part of what Jim said, the most important part probably, is once that inevitable, quote-unquote, terrorist attack happens, that'll probably be committed by the Ukrainian forces, let's be honest, but they're going to blame Russia for it. And then it takes, because we, we know how the United States works, it takes one troop, not even to be dead, just to be maimed. And that picture goes viral on the Internet. That is a nuclear war waiting to happen. Because we all know how the U.S. is, as much as Putin and Assad and others have shown restraint as we have literally killed their people uh, for, for, for no reason other than selfish imperial, uh, imperialist agendas, we will always use the death of one soldier who had no idea what they were doing was probably in the wrong place at the wrong time and use that to justify a hot war escalation. And that, in my opinion, I agree with Jim, is, is probably the goal, right? To, to literally put soldiers in harm. We know they're not above it. They will literally put soldiers in harm's way because that's the last step. When you can't get the American people to get behind a, a, a cause, the last step is to kill somebody and then have an emotional attachment to them. We saw it with the Lusitania, which turned out to be a false flag operation. The CIA later admitted. You know, we, we saw it with Pearl Harbor, uh, which the, the CIA knew about. They knew it was going to happen and did nothing to prevent it from happening. Um, 
And and we don't we we can't rule out that it would happen for something this major because of how big of a, an adversary uh, and how formidable of an adversary Russia is, and how quickly or how much the U.S. has seemed to be dedicated to dealing with them. Jim Biden attacked Republican House Minority Leader McCarthy for expressing doubts about continuing to finance Ukraine. Quote. They, House Republicans, said if they win, they're not likely to fund to help continue to fund Ukraine, the Ukrainian war against the Russians. These guys don't get it. It's a lot bigger than Ukraine. It's Eastern Europe. It's NATO. It's real, serious, serious, consequential outcomes. They have no sense of American foreign policy. So it's about Eastern Europe. It's about NATO. While the United States blows up, Nord Stream 2, sending the economies of Eastern European countries into the toilet and casting Europeans out into the cold. Yeah, well, it is about NATO. He's right. (laughs) You know, Stoltenberg said we cannot allow the defeat of Ukraine because it would mean the defeat of NATO. And he's right. It would be the ultimate defeat of uh, eventual and quick defeat of dissolution of NATO. And what and at the same time, what's being demonstrated here is that NATO and the military alliance with the United States is to the economic detriment of Europe. <laughs> Europe, the United States is using its military alliance, its military footprint in Europe and its military alliance with NATO to discipline the European countries economically and in every way. And they're saying this is... I don't know who who said it was a Pepe Escobar or something. They blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline was declared with declaration of war against Germany, <laughs> you know. And they're willing to do this. These European leaders are willing to go along with their own self destruction, the economic and social destruction of their countries, because they're more committed to the military alliance of NATO and being under you know, which is a, a an American organization, and they are you know dominions of the United States in that. And it's just an extremely dangerous situation. I hope and I think that the European public will be more quickly see through this and see that their interests are not involved. There are demonstrations of hundreds of thousands of people in European, in European capitals, mm-hmm. including Prague. I mean, you know, that we don't see in the United States. American people are, are, are fed this, you know, I stand with Ukraine line with Bono and uh, all the others, you know, well, well, not seeing that there's people in the streets throughout Europe saying we got to end these sanctions because they're hurting them. So Europe has to make a decision. European leaders have to make a decision. Unfortunately, I think they've made that decision and it's going to take real, real serious fighting in the streets in European cities to overturn it. In fact, uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says, quote, more and more economists, not only in Russia, but in the West, are arriving at the conclusion that the United States is seeking to totally deplete and deindustrialize Europe's economy. Germans are relocating a great number of their production lines to the United States with all of the consequences for the long-term competitive ability of the European Union that come with that. Nico, they're weak, you know, they're hiding the videos of the um, uh, protests in Europe, but they are happening. How long can they continue this? It's getting colder and colder before the people of Europe start tearing that place apart. Nico. Oh, well, you know, I mean, literally the people of Europe can start tearing the place apart and they will still hide it from the, from the U.S. population. <laughs> so, but like, the, in my humble opinion, but I don't think that the consequences for that change, like Europeans can literally 
I mean, they, I mean, a lot of the reason that we have these, these protests over the lies that were told during the pandemic are because of the demonstrations that happened in Europe that most people in the States don't know were happening. I, and I, I think that the consequences, though, uh, are dire. And one of the reasons that they're all in on this Ukraine war is precisely what, what Jim said, is that NATO was on the line. It isn't just on the line because of what's happening in Eastern Europe. It's because you just had a, a, a socialist effectively win in Colombia. You had a democratic socialist win in Brazil. And you're seeing this trend happening, happening in the global south where the, most, the, the would-be most powerful nations in those regions are winning, are, 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 are the candidates that are winning are the ones that are anti-U.S. imperialism and are more than willing to work with their global south brethren to undercut U.S. imperialism and ultimately, of course, U.S. dollar. So Lula just announced, for example, that they um, that they that they're planning on starting their own dollar called like the Sur or something like that, which basically just sounds the Spanish for South. And so you have all of these things, you know, India and, and Russia working together. It's not just about necessarily Russia and Eastern Europe. What they're realizing is is that nobody is loyal to the U.S. anymore if it is not going to serve their immediate interests outside of the maybe the few power players. In, in, in Western European countries, but even them, they're getting ousted one by one. So it's like, if they don't get this right, then who has, you, you can't be, win this little thing, and who has to be scared of you anymore? Your currency isn't worth as much. Your military isn't as effective. Even your regime change efforts aren't effective. So who, who, who has to worry about you anymore? And not every, and then what you, what you said about Europe, this literally, this alliance with NATO now has, has seemed to be against, completely against the interests of the people. There's no reason for them to exist in it. If, if people start losing their offices and losing elections, all of a sudden, NATO doesn't look as tantalizing. And so you start seeing the dissolution of NATO over the next few years if they don't get this Ukraine thing right. And I think they won't get it right. I think they're going to fail. You know, in fact, Europe has the same kind of alliance with uh, NATO that a prisoner has with the prison guards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, to some degree, you know, but I think that it's it's not like that because I do feel like a lot of countries in Europe are a little bit, or a lot of politicians in Europe are a little bit more adherent to their voters because they have, you know, a little bit more secure uh, security when it comes to their election. Um, and the people tend to be a little bit more educated on average. I don't think that, the, obviously, with the U.S., it's a little bit easier to fool people because our education system is abhorrent. However, I just feel like when the rubber meets the road, like it's October, about to be November. It is about to get cold. At that, like everything else is cool. It's about to get cold, really cold. Nobody cares about anything when you're shivering and your toes, you can't feel your toes and your gas isn't working because, of you know, we got to maintain this alliance with, with the U.S. Because, you know, if, if the U.S. is successful, like everybody will be like, first of all, they already don't like the U.S. enough as it is. The average person does. Or whatever. So there's that. But also... When you're talking about I can't put food on the table, I can't keep my house warm, you're in you're in dangerous territory if you're NATO in every country that's aligned with them. The Intercept reports the Department of Homeland Security is quietly broadening its efforts to curb speech it considers dangerous. This is an investigation by The Intercept. Years of internal DHS memos, emails, and documents obtained via leaks in an ongoing lawsuit, in an ongoing lawsuit as well as public documents, illustrate an expansive effort by the agency to influence tech platforms. Your thoughts, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, you know, they had 
very nice control over the media, Operation Mockingbird. They had the traditional legacy media. Uh, they had people in every news station and every you know major uh, news outlet, every major television network and they control that very nicely for you know 50 years 60 the advent of the of the internet and the possibilities of social media and things like wikileaks for example you know created a, a spaces where people could actually in, uh, express themselves freely and organize and have platforms and have new platforms that would present information i learned a lot from the internet in my old age and everybody can learn from the internet so they have to find ways of of restricting it and turning it to their own benefit and they're doing that very well and they're both restricting it in terms of this is they're placing essentially uh the the department of homeland security is becoming is putting people on the editorial board essentially of what are the social media platforms and they're making sure they want to make sure it's hard to do, but they want to make sure that nothing gets through. That's going to turn. It's going to undermine faith in whatever they want people to have faith in, whether it's the election system, whether it's the vaccines, whether it's American democracy, et cetera. So they're essentially coordinating with these social media platforms and becoming part of what's an editorial committee of those platforms. And it's extremely dangerous. And on the other side, they are flooding themselves, these social media platforms, with bot armies. They have the Pentagon and, and the Israeli spy agencies have hundreds of thousands of people they hire to act as sock puppets and bots on the Internet to put forward a tsunami of propaganda that will create the narrative they want to create. So this is now the information warfare we're in. They talk about the cognitive infrastructure being a crucial part of the, portion of the infrastructure of the mm -hmm. country. That's the ideological apparatus of the state, we, we Althusserians, you say. And they're right. It's important. And they want to maintain control of the cognitive, inf cognitive infrastructure of society. Nico House, about a minute and 30. Uh, I mean, this is just, I, I, this is par for the course. I've already, we've already talked about this. Well, it's been like six or seven years they've been doing this. I don't know how much further they can curb free speech at this point. Um, people are already terrified. They're, I mean, they're sanctioning journalists in, in, in various ways. I mean, hell, one of my jobs is, is scared to have me on television because they're worried the FBI, the FBI is going to be at my door. And that, that's where we've been at. Um, and I, I do appreciate bringing up the, the bots because curbing free speech isn't necessarily and exclusively about stopping people from saying what they want to, but it is about making them think their opinion is so unpopular and so derogatory that they don't want to say anything because they're, I mean, just for the simple sake, uh, sake of their mental health, they feel as if they're going to be viciously and ruthlessly attacked from merely stating an opinion. And of course, in the case of journalists like us, uh, it's, it's the honest opinions that get attacked the most. And so it isn't just about, you know, about stopping people from talking, but it is about making everyone else believe that your opinion is crazy. And then you begin to self-censor instead. Nico House and Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis today. Enjoy your weekends and we look forward to having you guys back. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Thank you, as always. Folks. You're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. President Putin skewers U.S. ineptitude. Speaking on October 27th at the Valdai International Discussion Club, Russian President Putin questioned the sanity of those who would, quote, spoil relations with China at the same time they are supplying billions worth of weapons to Ukraine in a fight against Russia, end quote. If you sit down and read this speech, uh, I think a lot of what is articulated are positions that are difficult to debate. But for insight, let's turn to our second panel. It is Friday, so it is panel time. We're joined by the national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace, an editor and contributing columnist for Black Agenda Report, and the Green Party candidate for vice president of the United States in 2016, Ajamu Baraka. As always, Ajamu, welcome back. Good to be here. Thank you. We're also joined by a diverse communications professional. He has a background in leading communications departments, being a communications professor, as well as a TV news correspondent for numerous networks domestically and internationally. Dr. Colin Campbell is always, sir. Welcome back. Great to be here. So in an answer uh, coming to you, Ajamu, in a in a in answer to a question on the growing tensions between China and the United States over Taiwan, Putin labeled visits by top U.S. officials to Taiwan as a provocation. This plus he draws the clear distinction between international law and the U.S. fiction called the rules-based order. When you sit down and read the Valdai speech and then you listen to Putin's uh, to uh, Biden's speech on Wednesday, uh, which was just more rambling and babbling than anything. Your thoughts, Ajamu Baraka, on the Valdai speech? Well, it's, it's interesting that you you made that uh, that that comparison, um, and and because I think it really captures the distinction between the leadership that we have in the U.S. and the leadership in Russia. No matter what you may think about uh, Putin and the leadership bodies, there still seems to be a uh, a maturity there uh, that uh, uh, that seems to be lacking uh, in the U.S. In particular, these last few administrations, and I would include the Obama administration in that. Um, the, he was correct to to make many of the points that were made in that speech, uh, especially the focus on the distinction between uh, the rules-based order that we have talked about on numerous occasions on, on this show, a rules-based order in which uh, the U.S. Um, creates the rules and enforces the order versus international law. Uh, Putin is correct in, in, in pointing out that the, the U.S. and the Western powers don't want to be uh, constrained by international law. They don't want to be constrained by even elements of the United Nations Charter. Therefore, they seek to operate outside of of international law, uh, but they need to give some kind of of legitimacy to their actions. So they come up with this this frame of international, a rules-based international order. As Putin points out, no one knows where these rules came from. We all really know, though, um, and what's, what's contained in them. And so making those kinds of distinctions are important. I wish that that discourse would uh, would catch on more 
uh, in the U.S. Because then we might have more uh, opportunities to uh, to assert some accountability demands uh, on the U.S. state. Uh, so this is, um, you know, there's, there's many elements I know we're going to talk about in that speech. Uh, but one of the things that is, is important to, uh, again, note is that, uh, you know, we could have avoided most of the issues that we are facing today if we would have had a more mature, uh, forward-thinking leadership uh, in the Biden administration. Colin, if I could add this, and and because very specifically, when I read that, I thought to myself, there's something I've said many times, because the context of the question was, they are, and I'll simplify it, the U.S. is picking a fight with Russia and China at the same time, and Putin says, are they sane? I've said this many times. Are they out of their minds to pick up uh, two? The, there's three superpowers, three great powers in the world, U.S., Russia and China. One of them is pumping weapons into countries on the borders of the other two at exactly the same times and saying, that, why are they picking a fight with us? It seems insane to me if Russia and or China was pumping weapons into Mexico U.S. would go to war for sure. And the idea that we can do it to them and they won't, to me, seems like the epitome of insanity. Well, and what compounds the insanity is the other two powers have military cooperation agreements. So if you pick a fight with one, you probably wind up picking a fight with both. It just seems insanity at any rate. Your thoughts, Colin? Colin Yeah, I mean, you have to say that a lot of people have been questioning the current president's cognitive abilities as it is. But aside from that, what I think the Biden administration is looking at is the relationship that China and Russia have formed over the past decade. They've expanded their trade uh, relationship. They've expanded their defense ties over the past 10 years. Even though they aren't formal formal allies, there's still some questions regarding the strength of the relationship that they've been culminating over the past several years. And, of course, their common adversary seems to be the United States in different iterations, of course, right? You have Russia, obviously, that's on the opposing side of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. But you also have China that's an adversary and when it comes to technology and competition with, uh, you know, when it comes to global trade and marketing and and, um, distribution. And so I think that when you're looking at the dynamics here, You have to think of whether the Biden administration is trying to calculate something when it comes to trying to control uh, both Russia and China simultaneously, even though it seems like this type of foreign policy uh, celebration is antiquated. It's something that I think that uh, neocons have basically promoted over the past several years. It's something that uh, has become also part of the Biden administration. And they're sticking with this policy. At the same time, though, you do have Russia and China that are developing their relationship together, looking at the United States and looking at how they are trying to preserve this type of military or uh, geographic hegemony. And again, This is a calculation coming from the Biden administration because of the precedent that has already been established. How are they going to maintain it, especially when you look at the uh, the interests of Taiwan, which we know that the Biden administration is very keen 
to pay attention to, making sure that China uh, does not go beyond its boundaries to their to their estimation. I want to follow up, just just get a, a little more analysis from you, Ajamu, on your point about mature foreign leadership. Because when you said that, that made me think about Tony Blinken when he went to Anchorage, Alaska and met with the Chinese. And they told him point blank, we're not going to sit here and allow you to insult us like this. I want to say that some even got up and walked out of the room telling Blinken, you can't just sit here and dictate to us how these uh, conversations are going to go. Uh, and, and we have to remember that there's a long history between Tony Blinken and Joe Biden. I mean, Blinken has been one of Biden's advisors when Biden uh, was still in the Senate. You've got Victoria Nuland fomenting the Maidan coup in Ukraine. You've got Liz Truss, who, who in a meeting with, uh, with Secretary Lavrov, uh, doesn't know uh, the Russian regions. And, and, you know, she's in there with the master diplomat. And she doesn't understand geography. I mean, the failures are, are are monumental, but it doesn't seem to matter. Well, you you know, it's interesting. Um, um, I think many many commentators have noted the uh, the significant drop off in the quality of of leadership uh, coming from the collective West. Um, Liz Trust was just one one dramatic example. Uh, of that, but it, there, there seems to be a kind of of, of amateurish quality to to the leadership. We had a relatively inexperienced leadership in, in Germany. You got that uh, mama's boy in France, uh, Emmanuel Macron. Uh, you got the uh, the the obvious shortcomings with the uh, Biden administration uh, versus uh, the mature, steady leadership that we see coming from the Russians and, and the Chinese. And it makes it a very, it makes it, 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 it is, is reflected or translated into a very volatile situation because the kind of mature steadiness that one would uh, assume would be part of, of the require, requirement to be a leader in the West, you know, is not there and there's no requirements for that. And that's why the Chinese told Blinken, um, that you're not qualified. That was the term they used. You're mm -hmm. not qualified to dictate to us. Um, you know, there, there, there's and this immaturity. You know, is reflected in these 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 policies. This this uh, attempt to try to bait the Chinese uh, into a a premature uh, reaction around Taiwan. And we, we we've been talking about that. One of the things that you know why it seems in fact crazy. There's a, a cynical kind of calculation that was involved, but it was, but the, the foundation of that calculation was based on the Chinese being as silly as the U.S. And that is that they're going to bait the uh, Chinese into some kind of uh, precipitous military action at a time when they know that the Chinese, uh, the Chinese military is not yet prepared or ready to uh, to be able to defeat a full uh, uh, onslaught from the American military. They know that they have about three more years. Uh, the Pentagon uh, 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 leadership, they, they understand that. And so there's this, this, this kind of calculation that's involved, but it's really, really uh, dangerous. The, the, and last, real quick, on the, 
the leadership question. Uh, you know, it, interestingly enough, uh, Donald Trump understood that there was a possibility of, 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 of providing some degree of balance between the Russians and the, and the Chinese. Uh, he wanted to, to complete the, the Obama pivot to Asia. He believed that the, the Russians were not natural uh, adversaries to the U.S. and that uh, there, were, there, there was the possibility of, of, of separating uh, or at least having some, some, some distance between uh, Russian policies, Russian interests, and, and Chinese interests. But that was undermined by this, this um, attempt on the part of neoliberals to undermine pr- Trump's administration and these flawed policies that almost forced the Russians and the Chinese to find some common ground for their their common survival. Colin Campbell, your thoughts? Yeah, I think it goes again back to just the common threat that China and Russia see, and that's the U.S. I mean, you have China with its second biggest economy in the world, and it's continuing to grow. Uh, this is despite some of the issues that countries have been experiencing with covid China continues to grow their economy. Meanwhile, you have Russia's economy, which I believe is ranked 11th in the world right now. China does see Russia as a weaker partner. Uh, At least that's according to the calculation of foreign policy advisors in the Biden administration. But yet still, Russia sees this informal alliance with China as an opportunity to grow its influence. Um, We have to remember that during the election, it's believed by members of intelligence in the U.S. that Russia had interfered somehow in U.S. politics in the elections. Now, obviously, you have debates on both sides of that concept, um, of that belief. But again, this is what the Biden administration believes. At the same time, they also believe that China has also been trying to fill in information gaps around the world with their own networks and broadcasting to try to curb or at least uh, marginalize as much as possible United States influence. And this is what they have in common with Russia. So even though they may not be the most formal um, allies, you still have the veto backing abilities of both of them in the UN Security Council where they tend to back each other. They do have what they believe is their common um, oppugnant uh, country, and that would be the U.S. And again, the Biden administration is trying to look at um, just how much this influence or how much this partnership or this growing or burgeoning alliance will affect the U.S. interests, which again, lean to more neocon tendencies when it comes to politics and, 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 and its intersection with geography. In Africa, secession of hostilities, agreement between the government of the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia and Tigray's People's Liberation Front, TPLF, is available on the web. It seems to, my understanding, we'll start with you, Ajamu. My understanding is that the TPLF, which most people know is supported by the U.S., um, it is a, it, I'll put it like this, the, the people of, uh, of Ethiopia are not very happy. And interesting, let me add this. The Ethiopian public, you know, I have a lot of them that, uh, that follow me online and watch some of my other radio shows, that traditionally vote Democrat by the hundreds of thousands are now literally saying to me and calling in saying, 
I hope the Democrats lose. I hate them for what they're doing to my homeland. They have infuriated the Ethiopians and the TPLF lost anyway. Your thoughts, Ajamu? I think what's significant about uh, what is what is just a number of things we could we could we could highlight. Uh, this was again another uh, uh, a conflict that did not have to happen. This was uh, going to be the Biden administration's weapon uh, that it was going to use to to garner support for its uh, commitment to to militarism, um, and they saw this as a, a sort of a soft target, if you will to encourage this, this conflict in Ethiopia. But they miscalculated. They miscalculated the relative strength of the uh, TPLF. Um, and they were quickly then also sort of overwhelmed by, and not so much overwhelmed, but they, they decided to shift to more uh, more ad- advantageous target. And that is to, to give uh, the green light to the conflict in Ukraine. That would generate more more uh, attention uh, in the U.S. and Western European publics. But the consequence, though, is that the civil war that they helped to initiate, initiate continued, and people died as a consequence. Uh, it's important that the conflict uh, or the, the temporary resolution of the conflict took place uh, in, in South Africa, and it took place under the auspices of the African Union. Um, and it was Africans themselves that moved to uh, to address this this issue, the U.S. was there, but merely as observers, uh, and the result was that they were able to reach uh, an accommodation, an accommodation that appears to be, and this, the details are still coming out, that in essence, uh, TPLF, TPLF has basically surrendered, um, and that's not a bad thing. And now they can begin to move back toward some process of, of national reconciliation in Ethiopia. Colin Campbell. Yeah, I think that it's, um, you know, we have to consider who was involved in this cobbling together of a peace agreement. Uh, of course, everyone was anxious for uh, for peace to happen, for an agreement to be reached, for the conflict to, to die out. Um, they've been at war. They were warring for approximately two years. But at the same time, we have to look at how this peace process was assembled, who was involved, and how they plan to move forward. One of the things that foreign policy advisors and and consultants are looking at is the role of Eritrea, the neighboring country, and as we know, the complex politics involved in the the separation of Ethiopia and what led to Eritrea, and what the involvement was when the peace talks were put together and what Eritrea's role was. And it's very unclear that Eritrea really had a pivotal role or seminal role in, in, in what happened here in the agreement that was reached. Therefore, if Eritrea was excluded from these talks, if they were not part of the agreement, will Eritrea honor those agreements, right? And will it still uh, continue its conflict or look at the Tig- uh, as Tigray as, a, um, as an adversary, right, as an antagonist? And how will that uh, contribute to continued peace in that area, if that's what's going to happen. At the same time, we have to look at the Amhara region. Uh, a lot of people don't know that Ethiopia is made up of so, so many different tribal regions and different cultures within that country. And you have the Amhara who 
make up a predominance of that population in Ethiopia, they also were not really part of the peace talks as well. And so, therefore, will they abide by the agreement that was reached? Or could there be further conflict unraveling what was already agreed upon? And I think that's what needs to be paid attention to as well before we have any premature celebration. And uh, Ajamu, understanding that the TPLF backed by the United States and understanding that the United States track record on following through on agreements is not stellar and looking at, for example, the, the Minsk Accords and how we now find out that that was merely just a temporary cessation of hostilities and not even really a cessation of hostilities, but an opportunity for the Ukraine army to retool and uh, regain strength. Do you have confidence that this can be a lasting accord in Ethiopia? Well, as as Dr. Collins, um, Dr. Campbell uh, pointed out, I think we have to, we have to monitor this. There's always that possibility. And as you you stated in your question, uh, we know that the U.S. uh, interest in the horn suggests that um, uh, as long as uh, Eritrea remains independent, as long as uh, the Ethiopians seem to be uh, committed to maintaining uh, a a peaceful relations between itself and Eritrea, uh, then there's always the possibility that the U.S. will try to to, uh, uh, generate some conflict using uh, its uh, proxy forces like the TPLF. I suspect, though, that uh, we will see some degree of, of stability for a while. I think the TPLF is, is militarily spent. Um, there's been real divisions among the Tigrayan people on this conflict. Um, and because of some events in, in, in Sudan, uh, it's, it's getting to a point now where the military, uh, 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 pursuing military means for advancing U.S. interests is not as, as uh, uh, attractive as it was just a few months ago. So it remains to be seen what's going to happen, but I think there will be some degree of stability for a while. Um, but, you know, this is a very complex uh, historical moment. And so we we really have to just see what, what unfolds and, and, to, and to be vigilant and prepared to uh, step in when we need to try to maintain or try to force uh, U.S. and Western powers uh, to uh, not undermine peace. Orinoco Tribune reports Dan Cohen on U.S. invasion of Haiti in the making. Ultimately, Haitians will liberate themselves. It's interesting as we see Haitians in the street by the tens of thousands saying we don't want a U.S. intervention. And certainly the U.S. has invaded their country in the past, literally kidnapped Jean, uh, what was his name, Jean Bertrand Aristide, who they um, who they elected. The U.S. has a horrible track record of the treatment of Haiti, and the Haitian people are saying, no, we don't want you here. But Joe Biden gives a speech about sovereignty and independence and democracy and then says, oh, by the way, uh, I think we'll go invade Haiti. Your thoughts, and, they, and they kidnapped Aristide twice. Uh, twice, yeah. And they, and they, needless to say, the Haitians uh, don't want another slice of that pie. Uh, do, uh, Dr. Colin Campbell. Yeah, we have to remember that in Haiti, the U.S. have been a constant force, right? You have U.S.-backed forces uh, still there. They are still involved in the military development of that country. Uh, they, they train 
they train militaries there. They arm militaries there. They uh, they also have a presence. Uh, some would say an interference in, in Haitian elections, um, you know, reinstalling or overthrowing uh, leaders that were elected. And so, you know, in the last three decades, U.S. troops or troops, U.S. backed troops have either invaded or intervened in Haiti at least three different times. At the same time, though, you do obviously have political unrest in Haiti. You have social unrest in Haiti and you have the um the the prime minister and the president Henri calling for a military type of intervention now the thing is though he didn't say who was supposed to support this military who was supposed to orchestrate it who was supposed to direct it but the US has already been there their presence is already there so it seems like the Biden administration is trying to capitalize on this and say well we're already there we already have a history of messing Haiti up anyway. Of course, he doesn't say it like that, but we know that that's what happened. So if you have the leader of that country saying, we need troops here, we need something, we need some kind of force to help us out to some degree, to provide some support, and the U.S. is already present in that country, that by de facto, uh, I guess, conceptual agreement or, 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 or notion, the U.S. is thinking, oh, well, then maybe we should be that that support the military force. And if we can make some money while doing that, well, hey, that's the American way. And I think that's what Haiti's facing right now and, and the U.S. is considering um, as we go along and we, we, we hope for a, a stable Haiti in years to come. And Ajamu, it would be one thing if Ariel Henry were democratically elected, were actually officially in his position or constitutionally in his position, and were not a puppet of the United States. But understanding that he is a puppet of the United States, it's basically the United States asking itself to intervene in Haiti. Well, that's that's important to point out, that, that basically the, the U.S. is in no way uh, an observer, uh, that the U.S. is in fact driving the events in Haiti, along with the support from its, its uh, other uh, core group partners. Uh, if the U.S. was concerned about Haiti, it would have, uh, have used its good offices uh, to put pressure on uh, Jovenel Moise uh, to abide by the Constitution and to stand for uh, for an election or to step aside and allow an election to take place. The issue in Haiti is the lack of, 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 of sovereignty, of, of national self-determination as a consequence of the constant meddling in its internal affairs by the hegemon from the north, the U.S. So there's n- in no way can we frame or should frame this in, in any other way besides uh, a crisis created by the U.S. and the West um, and a crisis that's going to be compounded if um, they find a way to uh, uh, to insert forces into Haiti uh, with the mandate to kill a bunch of Haitians who are going to resist in order to impose um, um, so-called order. And that order would be order that would be at the, at the severe cost of the Haitian people. So this is a time we have to be absolutely clear and demand that uh, the U.S. and Western European powers uh, stay out of Haiti, whatever internal issues they have, and they have many, uh, like what we just talked about 
in terms of how that situation was resolved, at least temporarily, in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Um, this would have to be a Haitian-driven mm-hmm. solution to their problems. Dr. Colin Campbell, Ajamu Baraka, gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time. We really appreciate your analysis. Enjoy your weekends, and we look forward to having you guys back. Thank you. Look forward to returning. Take care. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 